This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Before the show begins, I want to ask you a very important question. Do you want to save someone's life? I know that's a very dramatic way to start things off, but trust me, you can help one of the 14,000 patients who need a bone marrow transplant and can't get it from a family member. 70% of those people in need will never get a bone marrow transplant, but you can be the one to change that. Register today to become a lifesaver because the chances of saving someone is one of the most exciting and selfless things a person could do. Trust me, I know. I did it in 2011, I want to say, and I became a donor and it changed my life because someone was able to be saved because of me. So text AMAZING to 5055 or go to dkms.org slash 100 words for a free swab kit. Message and data rates may apply, obviously. But listen, if I can save a life, so can you. This is a serious thing. Go and do it. It'll take 10 seconds of your time and you can save someone's life. All right, now here's the show. Hey everyone, it's Ray Harkins, and I'm the host of this very show called 100 Words or Less, which I'm coming to the conclusion that uh, this podcast is very just inappropriately named. And I know I've explained why I named it originally, but uh, you know, when I'm hearing from my mother-in-law that like, oh, I thought you really were going to, you know, talk about music in 100 Words or Less, it's like, oh man, I, I, I thought my cheeky joke at the beginning of the naming of this episode or this this show would be good. But anyways, it, I'm not going to change the name. I'm very stubborn when it comes to naming stuff. So uh, that's this is what the show is going to be called, period. Not rebranding, not changing it. If you don't know that it's a music show by looking at the graphic on iTunes or whatever other podcast catcher you use, then um, yeah, you're doing something wrong. But anyways, thanks for joining me and my guest and the rest of you out there in the digital world because, um, yeah, this is a fun discussion with people in and around independent music, and this one in particular has been in it to win it. So this is really, really cool because basically, so Brad Boatwright, he's the guest this week. I'm, I was very excited to speak to him. We actually missed each other a couple times in trying to schedule this talk, but we finally nailed it down. And he is the man behind the knobs at Audio Siege, which uh, for those of you that like loud and aggressive music, he is your dude. Basically, he mixes, he masters, he records. He's done so many records, I'm not even going to pretend to name them all, but uh, you can look up his discography and be like, whoa, he did that record? Oh, whoa, he did that record? And then he also played guitar and sings for a band called From Ashes Rise, which is a very, very incredible band in the sort of, you know, crust punk uh, sort of gutter punk. Well, no, gutter punk is maybe a little derogatory, but crust punk, I think that's the appropriate uh, description. And uh, they've done a lot of great stuff. And, uh, you know, they didn't play around for a couple years, but uh, over the past couple years have played some shows here or there. And I actually caught them back in 2012, I want to say, in Gainesville, Florida at the fest. And they were unbelievable. So, um, yeah, more on Brad in a moment, but uh, I want to talk to you fine ladies and gentlemen of the internet because i'm moving this is a huge thing for me i've lived in the same house for 11 years and uh, i just put it on the market last week and holy moly i forget how crazy stressful these times are in uh, getting the house you know ready to sell where it's like people walk in are like wow this is really nice i like what you've done blah 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 and then you know working with realtors and taking phone calls and there's just so much stuff going on but um you know it's it's all exciting fun because basically the hope is that in the next couple months i will be moved into a house in newport beach that will be quite nice and um yeah excited to uh, 
you know, turn the page and start another chapter, whatever silly metaphor you want to use. But um, yeah, I'm excited about that. But if I sound a little frantic here and there in the podcast, that's uh, probably why. Because, you know, on top of real life stuff, I'm also trying to record these episodes. And sometimes I'm getting people bothering me while I'm recording. And that is just absolutely silly. Usually I I kind of block myself off and, um, you know, that works relatively well. But anyways, so like I said, Brad and I we're trying to hook this up for quite some time. Brad was actually familiar with the show and he was excited to come on. And I love when people already know what's up with the show because I don't need to do this really long preamble with them where it's like, Hey, have you heard of a podcast before? <laughs> All this other stuff. So Brad and I dove right in and uh, he has a really, really unique perspective on, uh, you know, being raised within the punk and hardcore scene because, um, you know, him and his friends had to essentially create the stuff from the ground up being kind of in the middle of nowhere of Tennessee. And uh, I just like his story. So, and he's a nice guy and he's very talented. So those, that's kind of the trifecta of what I try to have on the show. Nice human being, very talented and tells good stories. Not all of them line up in synchronicity with one another, but for the most part, I think we do knock it out of the park. (laughs) So anyways, here is my discussion with Brad and uh, sit back, relax, enjoy pop a cold one if you drink beer or pop a cold one if you drink uh, LaCroix mineral water like I do. <laughs> I don't know why I had to just drop that in there. One of these days, they'll get the subliminal message that they should sponsor podcasts and most specifically my show. So that way I get just showered with all the flavors, grapefruit and peach pear and everything else. Anyways, here's Brad. And so From Ashes Rise was always this, uh, it was always a band I followed. And, but there was this weird sort of mythology in regards to uh, just as far as like, oh, here's these guys, like, you know, kind of sort of tangentially related to tragedy, but obviously from Tennessee. And then like, you know, because obviously a lot of bands in, you know, that sort of genre, um, you know, there's no you don't need to be a part of a sort of uh, you know record cycle ecosystem where it's like all right we got to do press now and we got to do this we got to tour it's like you know you put out records when you feel like it and hopefully people will follow along um did you ever feel like uh, you know obviously when from ashes rise was uh, you know kind of you know putting out all the records you guys uh, were doing did you uh, kind of intentionally sort of go forward with that uh, idea where it's like you know we're obviously going to do things in our own terms and we don't really need to adhere to the sort of you know trappings of the music industry as it were well uh, you know things have things have changed a lot um and we first started playing music. Uh, it's been almost tw- almost twenty years ago now. Um, so, you know, I mean, things have changed a lot in the last five years. So you can imagine. I mean, you know, the last twenty years, it's 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 changed, you know, substantially. Um, back, you know, in the nineties, from uh, when we started ninety seven, uh, and then you know. His heroes gone. Move out from Memphis in 2000. Um, we were all we were all living in Tennessee, right? And we were living in Nashville. Um, those guys were living in Memphis, and everybody would just tour all the time when you lived in the mid south. Because I mean, we, we would do two or three month tours. We did a two and a half month tour with Born Dead Icons in, in 2000, and would never do that now. But back then, you, you kind of 
you toured a lot and you wanted to get you were really ambitious we were all really ambitious we we wanted to get everything done you know and we wanted it quickly we wanted it you know then the problem with that is that ironically being in nashville music city usa we didn't really have any any decent decent studios or or uh, you know, studios with a catalog of recording heavy music um, that we could go, you know, record with. Um, Steve Austin from Today Is The Day lived there and recorded our first 7-inch, and he moved to uh, Massachusetts, and that was about it. I mean, that and everything was just really expensive in Nashville, uh, you know, as far as studios go, and it was geared more towards the, the country pop um, uh, kind of segment of 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 modern music towards a product, you know, churning out a product. Um, so, you know, a lot back then, a lot of times we would, we would tour around recording. We would book a week in the studio in Oakland and book a tour around it. Um, so, you know, geographically uh, there, there wasn't really, I guess we were kind of tied to that, 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 that area, but we would try to get out, you know, and, and, and get out and play music as much as we could, you know. Um, one of the things that has changed in the last twenty years and over the last decade is that you've 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 started seeing this um, more of a worldwide ecosystem with music, where music is becoming less and less tied to a, a geographic center. And what I mean by that is that stylistically you might have a band from you know Chicago Illinois that sounds just like they were from Stockholm Sweden and and you can't really you can't really put your finger on where a band's from because everything's so instant and accessible um and back then it was like it wasn't like hey check out our bandcamp page and then immediately you know there's everybody listening to bandcamp that's just that's what we had to do to get to 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 have people listen to us that's what we had to do to sell records that we had pressed that's what we had to do like i said to record and i mean hell it was fun anyway we didn't want to sit in tennessee all summer right get our mosquitoes you know so right no there's i mean there's a lot of interesting points that you uh you know kind of laced in there in regards to um the uh, just obviously that specific time frame but the uh i always remember like obviously i mean i i played in bands around the same time as you and like that concept of of touring to record i didn't actually do that but a lot of my friends did that as well where it's like you know if my friends are going to record with kurt Ballou and they're on the west coast they're going to play like a week's worth of shows and like you know obviously now nowadays it's you're gonna have bands that are gonna be fresh going into the studio as opposed to like what yeah what we were doing and it was like kind of like you know of course there's an argument where it's like well yeah you're a well-oiled machine after a week of touring and so you can go in the studio and bang it out but then there's also that like oh yeah you're exhausted too well yeah yeah there's that and i mean it's 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 so funny how how independent how this music that that all of us have been a part of creating for so long has has kind of grown to create its own little uh, weird idiosyncrasies or uh, weird little advantages and disadvantages and processes, its own little processes. Um, you're right about that in that nothing will pre- pre- prepare you for the studio more than playing music 
and being in a van with three or four other people, you know, eight if you've got a horn section, and getting ready to go to record, you know. But there's another one in that, in that, like, nowadays, God, I sound like an old, like, old person. Nowadays, nobody, uh, so I, I try not to say now and then, but what we've what we've what we've seen kind of develop over over that is that you know the the DIY touring or or, or whatever it has kind of um, the evolution of that has corresponded you know has had this parallel path with with DIY recording in that you know you go on tour you book your you book your tour around a week in the studio or three or four days in the studio and you prepare yourself on the way there by practicing every night at shows. And when you're there, you've got a very limited amount of time at the studio. And if you're recording to tape and it's all analog and there's, you know, very limited recall capabilities, when you're done with the mix and you approve it, you're done. Right. And you take that with you and that goes to press. And there's no second guessing it. You know, there's no there's no I wish we did this differently. Let's go back and change it. There's just, hmm, I wish we would have done that differently. Well, we'll do it on the next one. So <laughs> maybe we should have paid paid attention to the tuning on our guitar for the, for yeah, that time. Yeah, and it, you know, and it, it's 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 unbelievable how many how many things get adjusted and, and recalled and mixes um, these days, even after a band leaves from tour, because it's just so easy. And there's advantages and disadvantages to that, but. You know, it's 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 kind of cool, and it it was almost like a um, it was almost a handicap that created an advantage in that you just didn't second guess yourself or make lateral moves. Sure, yeah. There's there's more uh, obviously impulse into the idea because yeah, there's no ability to change things. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, were you? Uh, did you come up in, in Tennessee? Were you born and raised there, and are your family there, or where did you uh, come up? I I was born and raised in North Mississippi, about forty five minutes south of Memphis, um, on I fifty five, and uh, ended up moving to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which is right outside of Nashville. Um, after I left high school, and I, I moved there to go to to recording school. God, oh, so you you had a vision early on of of the, <laughs> the recording life, yeah, and uh, and had it shattered when I got to the classes and figured out that they were, you know, upwards of three hundred people in some of them. So, um, so I, I grew disenfranchised with recording school pretty quickly, um, and I was pretty bad, and I, I could I, I had a hard time focusing, you know, like. That was right about the time that From Ashes Rise started. And uh, I was, let's see, I was 19 or 20. I think I was 20 when we started. And, um, and you know, it, it, I had been in school for a year and a half or so. And I, I was just not really, I felt like I wasn't really getting anywhere. And so I, I ended up leaving recording school and going on tour. <laughs> right all the time and uh, learn more from from actually being a recording musician and, and even just from learning how instruments uh, worked together you know live in a live situation yeah you can learn a lot of, uh, about that it seems like the uh the this the living that you probably did you know as a kid and obviously when you were growing up um you know 
by all stretches of the imagination, I presume, was pretty sort of culturally devoid. Like, you know, you obviously probably had to create your own uh, fun, but either by playing outside or obviously, uh, you know, playing sports or whatever. Um, what kind of kid did you find yourself being as you were growing up? Were you that sort of, uh, you know, active person or did you uh, care more about, you know, <laughs> the artistic endeavors? Um, well, I guess both. I mean, we, I was, I was really lucky to not grow up in, uh, surrounded by what I'm surrounded by now, which is an urban environment. And I don't mean that, that, that an urban environment's bad or anything. I just, I'm lucky in that I got to experience growing up in, in a very rural area, um, with, you know, surrounded by you know, thousands of acres of woods in North Mississippi. So, uh, you know, when I was young, I, I used to play outside a lot. I would just go walk through the woods and explore or climb trees. Um, and then when, you know, I started playing guitar and discovered music, a lot of my time, you know, after school was spent listening to records, mail ordering records, listening to them, playing along to them and playing guitar, um, for hours on end. And where did the, was love of music fostered by like, you know, any older brothers or sisters or how did that entry point kind of come into you? Um, well, God, I mean, I've always, that's difficult to, to, that's a really difficult question to answer because I remember being a, I remember being really young, like a, a, you know, five years old or something. And my dad, tapping his foot on the floorboard of the car and telling me, you know, you tapped your foot to the beat, you know, and thinking that was really cool. You tapped your foot to the beat. You're, you're getting involved with music, you know, or with, with, with the music you're listening to is affecting, is affecting you to the point of movement. You know, it wasn't quite as philosophical a thought at that time as it, it is now, but, um, man, I, I mean, I just, I've always loved guitars. I've always loved music and it just kind of, everything kind of, evolved slowly i guess um you know there was there was the first time i heard metallica you know and there there were there's all these little things there's all these little things that have kind of contributed to that there's the first time i played a vinyl record there's the first time i grabbed my dad's uh, copy of black sabbath volume four and listened to it and then weeks later found out that hey that's that's Ozzy Osbourne on vocals, you know? Right. So uh, there's all these, there's all these things, there's all these experiences. And I didn't really have anybody. I grew up in a small town that was, that was a very small, you know, conservative, um, community that I really didn't relate to anyone there. Mm -hmm. Um, and the people that I did relate to, I didn't relate through to, through, music necessarily i just related to through the, to them uh through being friends or, or through enjoying doing the same things together um so it, it's a, an, another kind of difficult question to answer because i don't really know where where it, where it started but sure it yeah. just kind of grew and yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of mail order uh of of you know records or fanzines and things like that and you go through the fanzines and you re you read the reviews and you know if if there's a band that you like uh, say a Greek band is reviewed in Profane Existence and it mentions Amoebix and you like Amoebix, then you mail order that record. And then you get it and you like it and then a few months later, if another review mentions that record, you buy that one. Right. And 
So because uh, the, the the reason I ask that is obviously because you know uh, most people that obviously live in some sort of major metropolitan area, you know, while there obviously is difficulty in you know pulling some of these threads out and obviously figuring out like you were talking about mail order and all that sort of stuff um you know being in a place where you were obviously pre-internet that's a that's an even more difficult task but i'm sure in certain respects it was fun because you were um you know sometimes people obviously when they get into you know independent music and they start pulling on those threads they have their vision uh either distorted by the people around them or it's like, Oh, that's not cool. Don't listen to that. Whereas like, if you're kind of finding your own path, you're going to be like, Oh yeah, I like the misfits and I like earth crisis and those are okay. Like, as opposed to like, yeah. oh, wait, I can't, I, I can't like that. And, but I can like this, you know? Well, and you know, there was, I, there was Oxford, which was um, fairly close to where I grew up. And what I, what I ended up doing, I, I grew up in Batesville, which is, I mean, it was just a small town. You know, there wasn't really, I mean, there were cotton fields there. There was a garment factory there, you know, because of the cotton fields. Um, and there was a public school there that couldn't afford to put stalls on the bathroom doors, but somehow managed to spend a massive amount of money on a football field and a track. Right. You know? <laughs> sure. And then ended up being state champions in football for something ridiculous, like 15 years straight or something. I mean, so you see where the priorities were there. And so I kind of exhausted all my opportunities there. And as far as connecting with people that enjoyed music and Oxford was the next town over, it's a college town. And uh, I discovered a fanzine from there called Assault with Intent to Free, which um, a very close friend of mine, Newt, did. and they were all older. They were out of high school, in college, you know. And so I ended up connecting with these older people um, once I kind of got entrenched into the, the punk and hardcore world and, and ended up just going to spending all my free time, like on the weekends or, you know, whatever, in, in Oxford hanging out with them. And I learned a lot through them and discovered a lot of, of great music through them. Um, yeah, you know, it was, it's funny. I was thinking about it the other day. I was listening to the Melvins and thinking about first the first Melvins. Um, I had a Melvins tape. It was it was uh, I think it was what ten songs and like I just bought it on a whim, right? You know, it was like a dollar at some head shop in Oxford, and I remember there were there were these there was this small little handful of like metal heads at my school and not like, I mean, they were just like, like death metal, like death metal and, and Metallica, right? Like, but they were, but they were just, I mean, they were just dudes. I didn't really feel connected with them. Right. But I tried to kind of connect with them because I was also into metal. And this, this incident incident struck me, uh, you know, and, and it's always stayed with me because one time, one of my friends who was one of these guys who listened to metal, I, I said, Hey man, you know, you like, you like metal. Check out this Melvin's tape that I hear. Take it. I'll, I'll, I'll loan it to you. Check it out. Thinking he'd really like it. Next day he comes back. He's like, that shit sucked, man. You know, right. It's like, okay. Yeah. It wasn't cannibal corpse. It's not, you know, they're not playing like a mile a minute, you know? And, and so that kind of further kind of, made me think, well, you know, I'm, it's not, I'm not really like, what, what am I into? What, what am I? What, what identity do I have? 
it's so a lot of that identity with it's a great thing about this music that we that we that we create that's a great thing about this community that we create we've kind of created it and we continue to create it and and what we're doing is creating our own identities you know we're not metalheads we're not just punks we're we're people who do play this music that's become incredibly complex yeah that's a really good point um and so what did your uh, parents do and what did your uh, as far as a living was concerned and like did you have brothers and sisters what did your household uh, structure look like uh i have one brother who is two years younger than me okay and uh and my parents were really supportive i mean my 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 dad bought me my first guitar you know and like i said he i'm lucky he had a black sabbath record in his record collection right. and things like that but, you know, I developed a, a love for classic rock, Led Zeppelin records. I mean, shit. You know, the plenty of plenty of music that I'm still into. I got into by searching through my dad's record collection, or, or by him telling me about it. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I was I was also kind of a kind of a black sheep, I guess, because like I said, it was a small town in, in Mississippi. So I think my my brother my brother found his own set of friends and, and ended up doing what he does in, in, in being um, very established and very successful at what he does but he never really he never really followed the musical path we kind of went two different ways with that um, but my parents were always really supportive I, I think they I always think that they they felt maybe the playing music and touring and everything was kind of a phase sure that you would you know, eventually get my, out of yeah yeah even through my mid-20s um, yeah <laughs> Shit, maybe until they just got like iPhones and they sit around on their phones like googling shit, you know, and right. thinking, oh, well, maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't a phase. I guess I don't know. Right, right. Uh, what did they do for a living? Like, did they obviously were, were they able to put uh, in context at all what you were doing, or did they, you know, just kind of have uh, normal jobs? Um, well, my mom was uh, my mom was a teacher for a while, and then um, she went on. She moved on to uh, social work, and my dad. Uh, my dad worked his ass off until last year, honestly, which I mean was way past the retirement age of the previous generation. And um, he was an engineer for um, for the phone company. Oh, and nice! He started as a lineman. He started when I was a baby. He was climbing telephone poles and risking falling or electric shock or something. He, he started like actually phys- doing physical manual labor. Um, and and kind of just worked his way into um, into being uh, you know an engineer. Uh, couldn't really tell you exactly what he did. He was he dealt with where where uh, where phone lines would go and 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 portions of you know where the where the land um, was to be or where the land was actually divided or where they had right of way and things like that. Nice. Um. And so, like like you mentioned, obviously you had the uh, the bug to record uh, from an early age. Um, it, it, was that always something like? Because usually, obviously, once you start to kind of play in bands, you have maybe hopefully one person in the band that kind of gets interested in that. Were you always kind of the guy in all the projects that you played in to be like, oh, here, Brad, Brad's a recording guy, like he has a four track or whatever. Um. <laughs> Not really. I probably just said I was. Right. <laughs> I mean, but shit, yeah. Like recording, man. Recording is fuck. It's 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 always been like I, I my first 
I, my first endeavor into recording, I, had, I, I figured out, well, I could take this karaoke machine and record onto a tape and then put that tape and play it back and plug a guitar in or a microphone on my little guitar amp here and, and record like overdub over that tape, right? And uh, I remember I had this little Casio keyboard and it had a country beat and the, it was just like a country beat, like, you know, sped up bluegrass beat, right? And I remember I cranked that fucking thing up like all the way. So it was like, you know, and, and I'm sitting there like recording this just basic riff. It's like, and it sounded like shit, but, but at least I had like a rhythm that I could write music over. And so, you know, I started with that and then, um, I think I just kind of, as, as things progressed and, and we started recording, I think I just kind of inserted myself into things. So there was no, there was never really like a, Hey Brad, like, can you do this or, or whatever? It was more like just, I'm already there, you know, annoying the engineer looking over his shoulder or, or whatever, or, you know, being a dick to my bandmate because he didn't do something my way or something, which, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's uh, I think that's part of youth too. <laughs> oh, it absolutely is, and and regret is is part of where we're at now. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> totally, you're like, oh man, I wish I would have handled that situation a lot better. <laughs> God, yeah. So, was uh, for all intent and purposes, was uh, from Ashes Rise your your first band, or did you obviously play in different uh, different stuff at an earlier age? Uh, well, my friends in Oxford were, and they're still in a band um, called the Cooters, which is they've kind of evolved from this this just this kind of experimental punk band in, in Oxford um, into doing like a very versatile um, style of music these days, which is, you know, a mixture of punk and metal and rock and everything. And we were, man, I played with them for a little while. And was that your first thing though? Yeah, I guess it was. Nice. And, uh, I and mean, did you, did you play guitar bass? What did you do? In I, there? I played guitar. Okay. And I mean, <laughs> That that was that was a lot of fun back then. That was a very us against them thing because we were the we were like we were the punks in town. We were the outcasts. We were we were the the misfits. And I mean, we we had a fucking we had a cop bust into our house. We've got we've got like this on on audio somewhere. I, I like I know Newt has it on audio, or maybe even like we have pictures of it, but. We lived out, you know, ten minutes outside of town, and it back, like out of the, it was in the uh, the jurisdiction of the sheriffs, right? So, man, I remember we were practicing one night, and we had mattresses up on the wall that we'd found on the on the side of the road and everything, and uh, and the cops come like knocking on the door, we can't hear, them. and they're knocking on the door, we can't hear them, and finally they just bust the door down and storm into, into our you know improvised practice space and you can't practice you can't be doing this you're making loud music you know like we're in the middle of nowhere and they ended up telling us to stop we're not going to stop it's like you know 8 39 o'clock at night it's and it ended up with them having uh having newton a headlock trying to drag him out <laughs> out of the house and and nobody got arrested nobody got ticketed it was just like you know we'll be back you know and they're they leave i mean that that's the kind of shit that ha- would happen and so that was my that was like my first band and and uh and then i left that and, and ended up moving to nashville and, and and started from ashes rise nice 
Uh, well, yeah, it sounds like a very formative uh, first band experience. <laughs> oh, man. Did you, for the world. <laughs> did, you, uh, did you tour with that, or was that kind of all just the sort of local gigs? It was just local stuff. Uh, we, we played a couple of shows out of town in, in Mississippi, or my, I think we played Memphis uh, once or twice. And, nice. So, um, yeah. The uh, you know, kind of fast forwarding, but something that I, I found so interesting um, was, you know, when because obviously you uh, from Ashes Rise, uh, you know, you guys worked your asses off. You did a lot of different releases on different labels. You know, you put out stuff on Havoc, correct? We did. OK. Um, and then I remember uh, the sort of uh, I wouldn't even call it controversy, but just the uh, uh, maybe shock is a better way of putting it, where it was like, oh, my gosh, from Ashes Rise signed a Jade Tree. Like, I just remember the discussion uh, amongst people where it was like, OK, because here was this, you know, this band that obviously existed in the sort of, you know, whatever crust punk independent punk community um, where obviously there was a lot of discussions around uh, whether bands were allowed to have barcodes on their records and stuff like that, which obviously, <laughs> you know, this day and age seems so trite. Um but I remember, so I, I remember that conversation existing, um, and I presume that, that you probably uh, heard some of that, or obviously had uh, discussions internally with the band. Like, uh, you know, kind of walk me through that because I'm sure that there was uh, some some discussions going on <laughs> around that with you guys. Oh, that was a lot of fun. That was a that was a fun time. <laughs> and looking back on it, it's like, wow. Okay, I mean. I don't really believe in like if then uh, hypothetical statements. So I wouldn't say like if that happened now, then it wouldn't be a big deal. Or if that happened now, people wouldn't be surprised because right. I just don't know. Yeah. Um, but to be honest, it was it really never was that really anything. I mean, it was. I think the I think a lot of that controversy or, or whatever I think a lot of that that alarm that people had was was maybe a fear that things were changing with the scene sure or maybe a fear that people outside of that small little bubble were starting to enter it and get involved and a lot of that was based on misconceptions. You know, the misconception that Jade Tree was something that it wasn't, which was two guys with who were into hardcore, with a background in hardcore, putting out music and developing a very diverse catalog. So, you know, if, if had it been a more extreme music label, I think it would have been one thing. But... I always saw J Tree as kind of a, a touch and go sort of um, label, and that they they just they did a lot of neat stuff. Whether it was um, Damnation AD or Cat and Jazz, mm-hmm. um, and I wasn't personally into a lot of the stuff that they did, but I respected that they were that they were doing it, and I respected what they did, and I respected that I could call up and talk to the people who were who were running it and everything. Um, I had you know no no regrets about any of the releases we did with any other labels and I never felt like we were abandoning them um, you know and then we did that split with Havoc and Havoc ended up licensing the uh, vinyl of Nightmares and he's still got it in press and he does a really good job um, so you know it's not like we 
it's not like we made a big jump or a big leap or something like that. Looking back on it, I, I, I don't even really think there's much of a point explaining the move because it was it wasn't it wasn't one that was very unnatural to us or or, or felt unnatural. Yeah. But like like I said, I think a lot of it was uh just just fear and 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 uncertainty and and group collective anxiety you know and and the newness of of lacking the you know when when you wanted to complain about something there was this huge filter and the, the filter was the time and effort that it took to write a letter and put a stamp on it on the on the envelope and walk it to the post office and wait a month or two or three months for that letter to be published in, in Heart Attack or Maximum Rock and Roll or something. Right. So, so that filter, there's a lot of complaining that people did that, that, that didn't get um, archived, right? That didn't go, it just, there's a lot of vocal complaining that somebody did in 1996. Like this, somebody somewhere talked a lot of shit about somebody, but it was just words and they ended up, you know, echoing out into space. And so that there's a, there's this big filter there. Um, once you know, once it's it's once it becomes easy to have your complaints voiced immediately. In other words, you get up, you type something on your keyboard, and boom, it's on a message board, or boom, it's online. Then then that filter has become less effective, right? The filter of the time and effort it, it takes to complain, and and the time and 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 the time that that you have to consider your complaint. So a lot of complaints were immediate, and I think we maybe reacted to a lot of immediate complaints without considering that, you know, they were immediate. Um, and I think a lot of people reacted immediately. Um, but look, looking back, it's, I mean, things are, I, I don't know, things, I, I, I don't know, things are, things are different because nowadays there's, it's almost like a post-apocalyptic thing because that, like that, that was right before the record industry the music industry took a huge downturn and a lot of labels didn't survive that and a lot of bands didn't survive that um vinyl was all but dead for a while and now there's all you know it's kind of this huge rebirth and that independent music is fucking awesome right now it's it's better than it's been in a long time and it's better than it was in that during that slump as far as quantity goes, you know, why there's always been great quality bands, but there's a lot of it right now. People are buying vinyl, you know, pressing plants aren't closing, they're opening and they're backed up um, due to very various factors. But, um, you know, I think, I think that kind of that, that period of time where things got really shitty kind of had it was a everybody took a collective deep breath right so 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 it started up again and it started up again in in a way that that kind of maybe left a lot of that mentality behind yeah no it's a good point i, I really like what you said in regards to the um the idea of obviously the, the the collective fear being placed on moves that obviously bands made you know like uh, mm-hmm. that's that's definitely an important component where it's like you know, I, 
I, I just look at my own experience as well, where it's like, you know, I was able to like, whatever lived most of my independent music life in orange County. But then also I spent a lot of time up in Santa Barbara, you know, home of obviously, like you said, heart attack and ebullition. So it's like, I was able to see all of these scenes kind of coexisting with one another. It's like, you know, I could see a band like Yafet Kodo and then I could, you know, participate in this sort of like orange County metal hardcore scene, you know, right. and they, they both had similarities, but then they also both had, you know, huge differences. But I do think it's that collective, um, you know, the, the, the you know bubbling uh, undercurrent of bands of a certain genre and obviously trying to push forward a political message there does become that sort of unease when it's like wait a minute this thing's you know getting too big or too out of our control like we need to rebel but then you know then you're also just looking at you're you're preaching to the choir you know and like i think that's why i really like I, I had I, I didn't look at the move you guys made to Jade Tree as being like this, you know, seismic shift. I was like, Oh, that's great. You can play to people who might not have ever heard of you because you're aligning yourself with this this label, you know. It's like you're not preaching to just the choir. Yeah. And you know, afterwards we I mean we we made a point of trying to balance the the shows and the tours that we did. Um, you know, from being a basement show to being a big club show with strike anywhere or something um we wanted we wanted our cake and we wanted to eat it too whatever i never understood that phrase because when you have a cake you fucking eat it so we wanted to eat the fucking cake right like we wanted it all like we we wanted to do that we wanted to go play a basement where the cops are going to be there at 10 and the opening bands you know took forever and it's 9 45 and you're just now setting up and you've got to blast through your set and we wanted to be able to do that and the next night go play, you know, go play somewhere with like good sound and a stage where we can move around and, and have fun. So, and I'm, and I have no regrets about that, about that choice and, and, and that, that experience. It's, it was great. All right. I am so damn excited about this sponsor. I can't even, I'm just bursting with enthusiasm for this. And I, I promise I, I'm not just being a shill. They, they, they sent me some free product, but Holy, okay, hold on, let me back this up. So, Soylent, you may or may not have heard of this product, but basically what it is is a meal replacement, I wouldn't even call it a shake, but just a, a, a drink. So, basically what it is, it is a, recognized by the FDA as a food. It is a complete meal in a bottle. It is convenient and a healthy alternative to fast, which is basically like, you know, when you fast, you, you don't eat food. So Soylent, it, basically, it's this the most convenient thing I have ever seen. Um, and now, let me be abundantly clear in the fact that I like food. I like to eat food. But there are many times where I find where it's like, you know, I'm in the middle of some some work or everyone's super busy. And rather than, you know, grabbing, you know, some nutrition bar that is uh, full of things that aren't necessarily the best for you, Soylent is so goddamn perfect that it just blows my mind and that's why i'm so excited about it so basically i'll I'll kind of walk you through this um it's not a diet replacement it is not a weight loss product or it's not a supplement or a protein shake it is a nutritionally complete meal and it's like are you kidding me there's there's 400 calories in this thing there's 20 grams of protein 20 percent of all daily macro and micronutrient requirements based on a normal 2000 calorie diet and there's no animal products it's vegan and that's what I love as well. So basically, this thing is cruelty-free. It's amazing for you to just grab from the refrigerator, drink. This stuff, t- the best way that I can describe it is 
it, it has kind of the consistency of, of pancake mix, but not as thick. And it has this, it's slightly sweet, but not so overwhelming where you're just like, oh man. So it's kind of like almond milk in a way. And man, it is so, so good. So basically this has replaced my lunches. This straight up, I don't, I do not have lunch anymore. And granted, of course, if I am like dining out with a client or something like that, of course, I'm not going to be a weirdo and have my shake there, but you know, or my Soylent, that's how I should appropriately put it. But trust me, this stuff will blow your mind. So what you need to do is go to Soylent, S-O-Y-L-E-N-T dot com backslash 100 words using the number. And you're going to get 50% off your first case of Soylent 2.0 with this subscription. So trust me, you're going to try it. You're going to fall in love with it. Your, your mind is going to become clear because you're not sitting there like, tell me, how terrible is it when you're like, all right, I want something to eat. And you spend like half an hour to 45 minutes figuring out what it is your, your body desires or your brain desires. This is basically just like, oh, no, I, I know what I'm going to have. Like right now, I am craving Soylent. <laughs> That's going to sound weird. But in 25 minutes, I'm going to go grab one from my upstairs kitchen, have it for lunch, and boom, done moving on with my day and loving the taste of it. So there you go. Visit Soylent.com backslash 100 words and you will get 50% off your first case of Soylent 2.0 with a subscription. So please do it up and I promise you will enjoy it. I would be remiss if I didn't speak about uh, Death Threat because you played in Death Threat, correct? I did. Yes. Um, and like something I find so because uh, I I was working at an independent record store here in Southern California when you know basically from like 2000 till about 2003 and it's like that's when we were the obviously SoundScan was still not even remotely a part of the independent music community it was kind of bubbling up but not to the extent of where uh, you know you can look at LPs like whatever you know obviously from Ashes Rise and Death Threat and Tragedy and all these other things you know like Code 13. They probably sold, you know, tens of thousands of copies, but no one has any idea, like, from a sort of mainstream, you know. And I remember stocking the Death Threat LP and just being like, I felt like I couldn't even, never keep it in stock. It's like I would order, you know, 10 copies from Ebullition, and then, like, a week later, I'd be like, wait a minute, I'm ordering another 15? This is nuts. Um, so, uh, you know, I presume it was maybe difficult to kind of see how an outsider would see uh, Death Threat. Um, but you know, did you feel like there was momentum behind that that project, and obviously the excitement that was uh, swirling around it, or was it just one of those things you you couldn't, ha- I guess, have perspective of the time over it? Well, yeah, I mean, of, of course we did. I mean, there was five of us, and we were all. I, I think at the time, Death Threat kind of got labeled as a side project, you know, because you know Todd and Paul were in His Heroes Gone, Billy and I we're in from ashes rise um so you know and we all i think it kind of got like that you know there was the whole members of thing you know every other flyer would say members of Mm -hmm. so you know i think it maybe did feel like that at the time and i think it i think maybe around the time that second lp actually you know i don't know first lp maybe maybe around the time that second lp came out like i don't know it's it's hard to to not be revisionist about it and look back and think like maybe you know maybe we we just stood on our own as a band or something i don't know um but that was god that was so much fun um playing in that band and recording and touring was uh, a lot of fun it was a lot of fun writing the songs you know writing just 30 second hardcore songs and 
and I played bass in that band. I play guitar and sing in From Ashes Rise, and I played bass. Everybody kind of played different instruments in that band, right? So, um, Todd played guitar in His Hero's Gone, played drums in Death Threat. Paul played drums in His Hero, played guitar in Death Threat. Uh, Billy played bass in From Ashes Rise, sang in Death Threat, and then. Um, our good friend Stan, who works across the hall from me now at the studio here, uh, played guitar. So, you know, it was kind of a fun, like, let's switch instruments, play, you know, just strip down bare bones hardcore. Um, and we were having a lot of fun. And we didn't really, there wasn't really like any, any pretense. There wasn't any ambition of like, hey man, you know, we're playing we're playing this gig tonight maybe you know maybe somebody will be there and we'll get signed you know well yeah you know there's no there's none of that it's just like fuck it you know get up and fucking play and that's what we that's what we did and it was a lot of fun right um i also found it interesting because obviously um i mean all, all the bands that you've mentioned um have a very uh, similar uh, not outlook on either society or obviously political stance, even though, you know, it's, it's nuanced in each project as it were. But, um, there was obviously this, this general malaise and sort of discontent all over, you know, uh, the way that, uh, quote unquote, normal people live their lives. Um, and I always found it so interesting. And obviously as a younger person, you get, you get kind of drawn to that because you're just like, Oh my gosh, yeah, they're right. Like, you know, something's fucked up and then <laughs> they're being able to put a voice to it. Um, but I found it so interesting that obviously it all kind of emanated from one area. Um, do you attribute that to anything or is it just kind of like, you know, because you guys were all being creative together, um, you kind of all congealed on that sort of idea. Well, fuck. Yeah. We grew up in a place where the Bible belt was fitting way too tight. Right. You know, I mean, it, I mean, and, and it was everything, everything we did was a response to that. I mean, there was, we were inundated with it. I mean, and, and conservatism is everywhere. There's, there's different types of conservatism, of, of religious conservatism, political conservatism, um, personal conservatism. There's, there's, it's everywhere. But back then we saw it as, you know, we were in the hotbed of it. And, you know, the South was... I mean, fuck, as odd as this sounds, uh, you know, 130 years later was still recovering from reconstruction and was still just a place where there was a lot of poverty and a lot of, you know, poor education systems, um, poor, poor health care systems, poor everything. And and there was but there was a lot of religion and there was a lot of um, there was a lot of being singled out for who we were. And we always had this us versus them mentality. And, and we took that into the music and into the touring that we did. That's awesome. I, yeah, I just, I I found it always so um, inspiring too. And it was, uh, you know, because obviously uh, since we were in that era of, you know, the internet was in its infancy and obviously you could promote tours and some things a little bit easier than you know pre-internet but then um you know when either you guys or obviously other bands of of your ilk and your peers kind of came through on tour it was always a kind of a shock to be like oh my god like there's 500 people here and like (laughs) no one no one really passed around too many flyers about it you know there was there's a, a general excitement for it but then i just always loved the it always felt like there was a sort of you know under publicized a current where people were just spreading the word via their friends, you know, obviously how 
how it was meant to be in the first place. Um, but uh, I just always was shocked and surprised at, at the amount of people that would show up to uh, certain shows of that nature. Um, you know, do you do you have sort of moments that you kind of like uh, look back at where you're like, wow, that was really surprising. I didn't believe that that happened, whether it was like a specific show or just kind of, you know, you felt the momentum was uh, sort of tipping in your direction in a positive way. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, I guess so. Uh, I, I, I've never really thought about it, but it would take me some time to think about particular okay. towns or shows. But yeah, you know, like there were, you go on tour back then and, and God, now that I fucking think about it, there were, there were some shows where you're like, holy shit, there's a lot of people coming in. Right. Or you're, you're hanging out in the van taking a nap and you wake up and you're like, what the fuck? You know, you, you don't expect it. You know, you don't look at like, it's not like, hey man, like I'm looking at my phone driving down the highway, like tomorrow night there's, you know, 300 people confirmed on Facebook attending the show tomorrow. Right. You just had no idea. Um, so yeah, there were, there were a few of those and, and yeah, those were always great. And those were the ones where you, a lot of times those are the ones where you hang out behind the merch table having fun and, and, uh, it, it ends up being a really fun show. There were some where you could always count on really good shows. You know, you could always count on a good show at, at Gilman. Mm-hmm. Could, I mean, in the Bay area in general and LA, like, you know, places like that, Philadelphia, uh, New York, Boston, Chicago, um, but man, yeah, there were those gyms, you know, like those gyms, like Lawrence, Kansas. Wow. You know? <laughs> so yeah. And there was a lot of that. And, and it, I don't think at the time I ever felt like it was a momentum tipping. I don't, I, you know, you don't think about it back then. You don't think like when you're young and, and you're just, you're just playing music and you're going from in a van from town to town playing music every night. You're not, <sighs> Some people probably do. I wasn't thinking like, hey, we've got momentum. We need to keep on it. I was just, this is fucking fun. You know? <laughs> totally. and, and the momentum was, was, was natural. And the momentum was just what we did. Mm-hmm. And I found it interesting too, you just, you saying uh, something like that, like, you know, Lawrence, Kansas, like, because I always found it really interesting too, because, um, you know, specifically with Southern California, where it's like, um, you know, there's obviously venues and there's legitimate places where, you know, tons of bands play, but then sometimes it's like, Oh, you know, this, this particular, you know, either VFW hall or, you know, space, uh, does maybe like one or two shows a year, but they're usually just like, Oh my gosh, like, you know, what are, I'm using a random example, but I was like, I want to say it was like maybe like 2004, 2005, but it was like, you know, tragedy played a show down here and you know, they played like the long beach warehouse. And it was one of those things where it was just like, there was like 800 people there and you're just like, this is not like, first of all, this is not sustainable because like, you know, people are getting drunk in the parking lot and you're just like, this, this can't be good. <laughs> but, yeah. but then there's also just like, wow, I can't believe that this many people showed up to this thing, you know, that is virtually ignored by a- any other, um, you know, sort of <laughs> pop culture, um, you know, measurement stick. It's like, this is just, but this is a very important to a large group of people. And I just always found it so interesting because it was obviously in even more unconventional venues than, you know, what we were used to playing in. Yeah. And you look back and you're like, but you know, that was really unsafe. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. You're like, that's so unpractical. Like, I'm, glad was, I'm glad there wasn't a fire. Totally. <laughs> totally. Or, uh, or man, I can't believe I played at one in the morning. Right. Totally. You know? And, <laughs> yeah the the imp- and there was you know there's the whole improvised show spaces which would still happen and 
God, it, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and there's so much that I miss. Right, and I, I feel bad these days because you know I, I I I'm surrounded by music still. I'm 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 entrenched in music. I, I work with music, so I do get a lot of vicarious enjoyment out of out of working with with bands and working on their records. Um, but I I still miss I still miss kind of the the reckless abandon of, of just going on tour and, and you know the the but I look back and I think man I we were dumb enough to try it. Right, were we right. good enough to make it work? You know, I would never get up in the loft and in a van and take a nap going eighty miles down the an hour down the road now. You know, I, I'm I'm thinking, fuck, what if we crash, you know? <laughs> and you know, I, I, I but I, I feel bad because sometimes I, I kind of miss that, and sometimes I think, is it me or is it, is it what everything's become? Is it is it me or is it just the fact that like here in Portland, there's a show, there's there's multiple shows every night. So, you know, you one thing you learn from going on tour like that and touring the United States and going from coast to coast is that where there is a large group of people. There might always be that large group of people, but that large group of people might might change over time, or that large group of people might might change what they're into, or the place might you know the, the venue might close. Um, but you, 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 one thing you learn from going coast to coast is that everything in between, like the little small areas where people don't go, are often the places where people appreciate the things the most. And those were the places where they were hungry for it, you know, because they might have, you know, a, a handful, three, four, five, if they're lucky, of shows in a summer, you know, in a small college town or something like that. And they're hungry for it. And even when you get outside of this, outside of the U.S., when you go to places like Mexico or places in Eastern Europe, um, and what some bands have done with Southeast Asia, which I still want to tour Southeast Asia someday, but places where people are so hungry for live music and for bands to come there. Um, so you know you, you've got the you've got the 800 people at an improvised space in Southern California, you know, and then you've got maybe the 20 or 30 people at an improvised space in you know somewhere in the middle of the of the country that's not a big metropolitan area that appreciate it just as much and you have just as much fun. So there was this, there was always this fun um, contrast between, you know, the, the lots of people, you know, you can barely move and, you know, a fraction of that, but people who really appreciate it. Right. Right. Um, and so like, obviously as you were touring with from ashes rise and, um, you know, I, I presume you probably weren't <laughs> making that band, a, you know, a full-time endeavor as far as uh, finances were concerned. So like, you know, were you coming home and just kind of like working odd jobs or at that time, were you also kind of trying to build up your, um, your presence within the recording world as well? Um, uh, well, definitely the, the former there was, <laughs> Yeah, we were lucky that gas was very cheap. We we were unlucky that we always had carbureted vans that got about eight miles a gallon. <laughs> so you know there was we would we would typically we would move out and put our shit in storage. I think we did that a couple times, 
or sublet your room. We did that a few times. Um, and if you can't do that, you just send money home when you know while you're on tour. Um, and yeah, it was definitely not lucrative financially at all. Um, I remember when we started. You know, we we had LPs and we were selling selling records for probably seven or eight bucks a piece, and that kind of brings more money in from you know that you don't get at the shows. And I remember we were we started kind of giving ourselves per diems, you know, a ten dollar a day per diem. So you had to kind of make that last and hopefully save some. And you know, you you get ramen noodles and you save the rest of it, or you go. You know, buy buy a burrito and and a beer, and you know, wait till tomorrow to get more money. Right. Um, so that, yeah, we didn't really, we never really made a made a living off the band at all. We never made a living off of it. I mean, you could say we made a living off of it while we were on tour, but we would always co- come home. I mean, uh, owing money, and if we if we divided up money at the end of tour, um, that money immediately went to paying the next month's rent. Our bills. I mean, and we all had cheap rent at the time. When we moved to Portland, we were all paying probably 150 bucks each for our room. Um, and same with Nashville. I mean, we were we were living fairly fairly cheaply back then. Um, but we didn't have guarantees. We didn't really. It was just kind of. We didn't really. We didn't really want to think about money while we were gone. It was our escape. We didn't want to think about life at you know at home. Right. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's cool that obviously you utilize this as, you know, obviously how music should be, or like you said, an escape, an ability to focus on something else creative and not be, you know, worried about the <laughs> the practical things waiting for you at home. Yeah, and, and now I don't, I, I should say that I, I I don't think it's bad to, 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 to make a living playing music. I, I think there's no harm in that. Um, I think if we were smarter back then, we would have come home with more money i don't think that i don't think that any amount of of strategy or or intelligence that we could have had back then would have would have made it to the you know made us get to the point that we could rely on income from playing music um to 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 live to pay our to pay our bills um with the exception of just touring year-round you know there's there's mailbox money and then there's show money and the reason, I mean, the reason the, the Who still plays live, the reason you got people playing live who were in their 70s, you know, these days who were, probably don't want to, the reason they do it is because that's, that's how you get money. I mean, that, you don't just sell records and, and get a check in the mailbox and live off of that. You, you have to play. And, and there was, we put a lot into it. We put a lot of effort into our shows and into everything and, it was there was a lot of neglect that happened at home that, because of that, and we didn't really want to tour year round. And that's probably the only way we could have made it to where we could have supported ourselves. Um, but it's a it's a zero sum game because you go on tour for a year in a van and you're paying rent for a house you're not using. So I mean, it's it, you got to be smart about it, and we chose to just kind of balance everything and not really not try to you know take a, a strategy of of touring year round to support ourselves sure um 
And so was, was audio siege something that you were always kind of envisioning? Like, did you, uh, you know, I guess what was your kind of path to making sure that that was sort of happening or because you, you strike me as obviously an ambitious person and the, I presume that a lot of the sort of business decisions, um, that, you know, you made with from ashes rise were you know, maybe you were the kind of the focal point of it. Obviously I know there are other band members, but you know, usually there's one or two dudes in, in each band that obviously kind of, you know, <laughs> either by default or willingly kind of accept the, the business stuff falling on their backs. Um, so I guess well, we were we were actually very democratic and very um, okay. We were uh, yeah. There was every decision we ever made. It was all four of us making it. So that's sure. something that I take pride in. Well, that's cool. I, and I'm, I don't mean to paint it with a broad brush where uh, it's obviously like you know a dictatorship. But you know, usually you have this sort of mouthpiece where it's like, okay, you know, everybody else has made this decision. Everyone else is comfortable with it. But, uh, you know, Brad, you're the, you're going to be the one, you know, talking to the label. You're going to be the one, you know, booking the shows and that sort of stuff. Um, or did everyone kind of, you know, divide the labor like that? Uh, there was a, yeah, I mean, everybody, everybody kind of did their own thing. Everybody, everybody, there wasn't really a contact for the label person. Um, uh, you know, Dave, our drummer, he would he would book shows a lot. I I, I really didn't like booking shows, and I, I don't think I was that good at it. Um, so I think it was more just kind of kind of natural. I, I don't think we ever really divided things out of that much. It was just kind of like, well, I want to do this. I'm good at it, so I'll do it, and it was accepted. No, that's cool. Um, so, I'm it, it, probably talk more than anybody in the band, so I'm probably that's probably why I ended up doing, uh, you know, a lot of interviews or whatever. But right, right. Uh, so, but to, I guess back to the second part of my question, where I was like, you know, that the vision of Audio Siege, like, do, did you have one, or was it one of those things that just oh, yeah. kind of evolved into it? No, I absolutely did, and uh, I, I, fuck, I mean, I always looked forward to being in the studio, and I always loved being a part of that and and in the studio there's you've got so many options and you've got so much um so much that you can do to end up with something that you have for the rest of your life something that's permanent and i always i'm not going to say i preferred uh recording over playing live because they're just two different things and they're incomparable but i always really fucking and i still do i love recording um I love being there and thinking, man, that sounds awesome. You know, I love getting a guitar sound. Um, and I love the rush of it, of the rush of like, I mean, we would play everything live. Every, you know, there were this, the guitars you hear on our records are, the, are recorded at the same time as the drums. It's not like there were scratch guitars and then we went back and edited drums and recorded guitars. What you're hearing is a live band with overdubs of guitars on top of guitars. And so there was always that rush of, you know, you play a you play a two or three minute song, and <laughs> and you're kind of tense, and you get you get about 15 seconds from the end, and a, there's a drum flub, or you break a string, or you're out of tune, and you're like, "Fuck, let's do it again." And there's always that rush of like, you know, the seventh or eighth take, thinking like, you know, you, you stop playing, and everybody takes their headphones off, and you look around the room, and you're kind of trying to gauge everybody's reaction immediately, and. uh you're like it everybody cool with that like that feel okay yeah let's go listen to it and you go listen to it and you're you're listening back thinking man i hope it's i hope this sounds good from start to finish and then bam you know there's a flub shit we got to do it again or if you make it all the way through you're like hmm, 
okay, let's move on to the next song. So there was a rush of, of that. You know, there was like this this kind of rush of that you, that you have with your expectations there. And so I, it was a very invigorating experience being in the studio. As invigorating as playing live, but in a different way. So I always did want to want to be involved with that and be a part of that. But I also really loved what would happen when our records would would we'd have a mix you know we'd have our songs and you know it's not like we threw them into an itunes playlist and they were lower volume than everything else and we're thinking why don't these sound the same it was it was always a transformation when they got sent to mastering so there was always you know we'd have this mix and we'd be listening to the mix and there'd be like 30 seconds between the songs and they're run off a tape or whatever and you know things kind of sound they it doesn't sound finished it doesn't sound like like we quite envisioned it from the records that we've listened to and i was always fascinated with what happened when we sent a record off to be to be mastered what would happen when when we'd get it back and listen to it as a record and that was you know there's there's the the rush of making the record and there's the rush of actually hearing the record for the first time there's a rush of like putting on the test pressing and being like, hmm, okay. So I was always really fascinated with mastering, and I attended a mastering session with uh, George Horn when we were mastering the first Death Threat LP and the second from Ashes Rise seven inch um, all at once. We were, Death Threat was on tour at the time, and I remember thinking, man, this is this is cool. This is way different than just mixing a record. There's stuff going on here that is really like he's working with a with a mix and and not creating something but transforming something so i I was always fascinated with mastering and um so yeah i always had that vision i always had that 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 end game in mind and uh just woodshedded for a long time i I mean practiced you know I, i i practiced and practiced and um and uh, Paul, my friend Paul, who played in Death Threat, he had a band called Criminal Damage, and when they did their first LP, um, they recorded it in the basement of my old house. They recorded it themselves on a Tascam 16-track, Tascam 1-inch machine. And uh, he brought it over to to my new place at the time, and um, <laughs> and we air quotes mastered it you know and it and had a lot of fun doing it and from there it was just a lot of you know a lot of kind of that that goal in mind while i was working at a motorcycle shop um thinking about it every day and emailing bands saying hey i really like your band i i'd, I'd love to work with you um and a lot of things just fell into place so you know i think i did I hope I did some things right, but I also, I had a lot of opportunities that, um, that probably wouldn't have been there had I not, um, been involved with playing music and with, with recording music and and touring for a long time and, and connecting with people and knowing people. So, you know, there, there's practice, there's, there's the connections you make and there's, there's what you do over time and it takes a long time, but, I feel like it was an organic process, and it was absolutely my, my vision from the, not from the start, but from right. the, the once you started developing it. No, it's really cool. I, I really like that point you made of, 
because there is that inherent level of trust when you yourself have, have obviously like played in a band um even if the, even though you may not sonically sound anything like what you're actually tracking or mastering or anything like that there's that level of like you know the person's been through this like you know they know what it's like to play in front of you know seven people in you know minneapolis or whatever <laughs> they, they know that that struggle and just the creative juices that have to you know be put into it so i'm sure that that you know like you said all those things kind of need to you know congeal together in order for them to make the the holistic experience that is like oh yes i i want to work with brad i want to work with audio siege because you know he's done it for a while he's talented what he does but then he also has the backbone of you know everything else you've done so yeah because so many people like obviously look for the sort of magic bullet solution where it's like hey how do i do what you do and it's like I don't know, like twenty years of work. Like you're like I don't. Yeah, you put a lot in. You put a lot of work into it, and you, you, uh, you know. And I mean, what do they say about luck? Luck is a uh, is is the intersection of what is it? Is it of timing and and opportunity, or something like that, or, or preparedness and, and opportunity. Right. That's that's when preparedness and opportunity meet. Right. Right. So I mean, I was prepared, and I had opportunities. Um, but the, the preparedness part is, is where you can, where you can fuck up. I mean that, because the preparedness part, yeah, that, that comes naturally from playing music or being in the studio, but it also comes from sitting in your room at two thirty in the morning, listening to fucking vinyl, you know, it comes from like, I mean, I, I really think that my biggest strength personally uh, when i when i approach mastering when i approach music that i work with i don't really think it's necessarily my experience um playing music as much as it is my experience listening to music and hearing it and knowing it you know so whether i'm geeking out on you know on the rolling stones thinking man sticky fingers really has that muscle shoals sound you know or throwing a bunch of Japanese seven inches, hardcore seven inches on, you know, over and over. It's, it's that, that enjoyment of music and that, that diversity and that connection with the music that, that really goes a long way. Um, and that's where you, you get involved with the music and you get inside it, you know, cause I've played my music. So for me to get into someone else's music, I, I don't need to pick up my guitar and, and learn their songs and, you know, start playing it, I need to hear it and I need to listen to it and I need to enjoy it and I need to recognize what they are going for, um, what their goals are, what, what they're trying to achieve there. And that's a, that's a difficult thing to do when you're one dimensional and, and, you know, you have a background just in, in a single style of music. And, uh, so that's why, yeah, I think a lot of, I think the un, unknown and unrecognized strength that I have is that I've, I've got a very diverse record collection. I can't tell you how many times people have asked me, like, do you work with music that's not punk and hardcore? Do you work with, like, non-heavy music? And I'm like, hell yeah, I do. Like, and I love it. You know, I, I, music is music to me. And while I'm working on it, it you know, at, at a certain point, I have to turn it off and on. I have to turn the, the ability to hear it as frequencies and transient content off and on. So, you know, your music does not become a, it's not a genre for me when I'm, when I'm working on it. So, you know, I'm not going to dip 140 Hertz because you're a hardcore band. I'm going to dip it because it's, because it needs to be dipped. Right. You know, and, and sure. Um, the last thing I want to hit on was the fact that, um, you know, it, 
obviously in the the business that you've created and the hard work that you do towards audio siege and all the um you know the projects that you work on um is completely like you can easily draw a straight line with what you've done with all of the bands and obviously you know there are similar principles and there are similar um you know ethics as far as the way that you you kind of do things um i presume that's obviously completely intentional and i'm sure you've had to make certain decisions where it's like oh like maybe i'm not going to work on this project because of you know uh, i just don't feel comfortable about it like or i don't think i'll do a good job on that um whereas you know some people would just be like oh i I don't care if i'm going to do a bad job at it i'm still gonna you know take that money or whatever um I, I presume that is a very uh, definitive sort of uh, mission statement that you're carrying forward into your life right now, too. Yeah, and, and I, I, I can't recall. I think there was one. I, I'm lucky in that there, there's not a lot of jobs where I, I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to take that. Or I like to give everybody, uh, like, I like to work on everything. And I have a hard time saying no to a fault sometimes. But. Um, I think there was one time that I ended up, I mean, there's probably been a couple times where I've gotten kind of, you know, an impression that like, maybe this isn't the right fit for the, for the band or for me. And there, there was one time when uh, the band asked me if they could Jew me down on the, on the price. <laughs> and, and it's like, wait, what? You know, and I just didn't write it back. Uh, you know, rather than just, I don't have time to go back and forth with somebody on email because I, I, I sometimes question, you know, maybe I should have handled that better and responded. But, um, yeah, I have a hard time saying no. So I, I, there's, I'm lucky that, that there's, there's a, there's a flood of, of, of work. So, but I also have a hard time. I have a hard time sometimes seeing it as something sustainable, you know, and, and I think it's just my own anxiety of thinking like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta work. I have to, I have a hard time not working. I, and so I have to work and I've got everybody needing work done and it all takes time and it takes effort. So I, I'm not really, I'm not selective. I think if my, I think if I got more, um, I think if I had more, like any tiny amount more, um, of work, I would have to be selective, but there's also things that you do when you're running a business that are, um, that you do when you start getting to that point to where you don't have to turn people away. Right. Um, so there's, there's, there's moves that you make and I try to make those moves to try to kind of, you know, whether it's scheduling moves or, or whatever, um, to try to try to keep everybody that wants to work with me able to work with me. Yeah, I know. That's great. Well, Brad, I really appreciate you uh, hanging out and obviously wanting to uh, share all this uh, this fun stuff and take a trip down uh, memory lane with me. I, uh, I enjoyed it. Thank you. I did. I did as well. Hopefully, I made sense. I think I feel a little long winded. I'm I'm uh, jacked up on a cup of Pete's coffee right now. So I, <laughs> no, dude, you- I have a tendency to talk. I I think about this stuff all the time. Like I, I think about it, and I'm just it's it's nice to be able to vocalize it. it that's I, I love talking and doing interviews like this because it makes me. It makes me say the things that, that are always in my head, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to be able to say that and, and have it documented and recorded. So thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. So that's what's up. <laughs> I don't know why. I just find that so funny. So that's what's up. It's like I'm blocking a basketball shot, and I go, see, that's what's up. Like, that's a successful interview. 
Anyways, because I just, I always say the same stuff over and over, so I try to, uh, you know, diversify a little bit. But that is uh, that, that is what's happening with Brad, and um, I will actually, I'm actually in his home city uh, in a couple days for a nice little uh, trip with the wife for our anniversary. We've been married for 11 years. Isn't that sweet? Aw, collective sigh goes across the internet or anyone that's listening right now. So, um, yeah, I'll be doing that, but you will get your regularly scheduled episodes as you do as I faithfully do for you. Like, do you know that? Like, this this obviously takes a lot of work to put together. So, uh, I, I just, I, I'm so stubborn when it comes to sticking to something. And anyways, this is what I got going on. So, that's what you're going to get. Anyways, uh, thank you very much, Brad, and for making the time during your busy schedule to uh, hang out with me and uh, talk about all this fun stuff. So, that's that. And the music, as always, is provided by Lowercase Noises, and you should check them out. Just Google Lowercase Noises, and you will be able to find them on the band camps or the Facebooks or wherever it is you like to listen to music. And uh, yeah, so listen to listen to that. And visit the show's website, 100wordspodcast.com, and you can also email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Next week is another fun one. And this is an in-person one. I was excited about it because James Vitalo, he is the vocalist for a band called Backtrack. He also manages bands like Turnstile and he is a, uh, he's a, he's a Renaissance man. He's done a lot of stuff within the punk and hardcore scene. And I was uh, excited to have him over and he tells some pretty awesome stories. We had a great time. So that is that. And that's for next week. And please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.